Nobody rolls their R's when they sing anymore. That's something you just don't hear in modern music. You never hear, like, there's some horrors in this house, there's some horrors in this. This is not done. Which is maybe the most cranky old person complaint I've had yet on this podcast. Oh, no one rolls their R's in music anymore. What is happening to the diction in modern music? Starting this off on a crankier note than usual. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the I Might Be Wrong podcast. That copyright expired music that we started the pod off with is There's Life in the Old Girl Yet, as sung by Maisie Gay. Interesting thing, that song was written by Noel Coward. Now, Noel Coward is one of those names... I'm an American born in the 80s, so I kind of know that name. Like, yeah, that was a guy somewhere. And that's accurate. He was a guy somewhere. He was a British actor and playwright, enormously successful, had a long career going from the 1920s to the 1960s. That's a career. And I was reading up on him this morning. One interesting thing about him is he was gay, and he lived his whole life in that weird purgatory we used to push gay people into, where, like, people knew he was gay, but it was just kind of not discussed. That was, like, the deal we struck with people back in the day. Like, we won't send you to jail. Ooh, thank you for not sending me to jail. But Yeah, we won't send you to jail as long as you're, like, a gentleman about it. Like, this is the right way to do things, old boy. So apparently he stayed within those parameters. It's so unfair. But... It made me reflect on the fact that one of the things that's been won with the unbelievable success of the gay rights movement in the past 20, 30 years, one of the things that's been won is the right to be flaming if that's who you are. Because that was not okay back in the day. It was okay to be a a, a proper homosexual. There's a right way to do it. There's a way to do it and be respectable, old chum. Nowadays, you can be whatever type of gay you want to be. You want to be a respectable gay? Fantastic. That's one of the types. Also one of the types, the lispy promiscuous type. That guy's invited to the party, too. You can be a sweater vest wearing, conservative homosexual. You can be that guy I saw walking down Halstead Street in Chicago at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning wearing nothing but a gold thong. That's all cool. Takes all kinds. I'm Jeff Maurer. Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is the audio version of stuff that I write and post on my Substack, which is also called I Might Be Wrong. So you can find this and many, many, many other articles, more stuff on the Substack than is on the pod. But the pod is also findable on, let's see, what do we got? We got Spotify, iTunes, YouTube. I want to do Friendster. I want to have a Friendster page. Some say it died 20 years ago. I say, let's look into that. I want to be on Friendster. At any rate, if you like what you hear, please share with your friends, tell people about it, like and subscribe. You know all this patter. Spread it around, please. Thank you very much. Let's do today's episode. Today's episode is called Everyone Hates the Educated Left. I wanted to write this one because in the political lefty, leftish circles that I run in, there's a lot of discussion about this guy, David Shore, who's a data analyst. And he has this analysis that he calls popularism, 
which is basically that Democrats should talk about popular things. Doesn't sound very controversial. At the core of it, it's not very controversial, but the applications have gotten a lot of debate. So I wanted to hopefully add to that debate. So the title is Everyone Hates the Educated Left. Subtitle, It's What We All Have in Common. So I've been wanting to comment on David Shore's popularism theory, but my thoughts on the topic were muddled. Luckily, my thinking was recently snapped into focus by, of all things, a Twix commercial. Let me describe this commercial, which is posted on the written version of this podcast. But the commercial, and I should point out, it's not technically a commercial, I think. It's a short video sponsored by Twix. You know how you're always watching short videos, short films. You're like, I want to take in some art, some cinema, so let me watch a two-minute video sponsored by Twix. Anyway, this is one of those. And in the ad, there's a little kid, a boy, seven or eight. He's wearing a dress the whole time. And obviously, a, a boy wearing a dress is not necessarily trans. Though you can tell, given the context, they're trying to signal trans or at least gender non-binary. Anyway, the kid gets a nanny. She shows up unannounced, which actually, now that I think about it, is maybe the weirdest thing about the ad. So this lady just shows up and says, I'm your nanny, and now she's in the house, and we're all okay with that. It's a phenomenally weird ad. To make things weirder, the lady is a witch. She's like this sexy goth witch nanny, one of those. Anyway, she hangs out with the kid. They go to the park. The kid gets bullied by a little shithead kid who goes... (laughs) you're weird, you're wearing a dress, you're not normal. And the witch nanny, whose credentials no one has checked, is this lady on the level? Anyway, the witch nanny summons a gust of wind and blows the little bully away. Some people have said, that's violence against a kid. Uh, You know, like maybe, it's like cartoony violence. I do think they made a weird choice when the bully is blown away by a gust of wind. He yells, help! (laughs) Why did you have him yell, help? And why didn't you show him in a tree or something afterwards just to go like, he's fine, like you'd normally do whenever there's violence in a thing? But anyway, they chose not to do that. And the main thing about this ad is that it's just bizarre. It's a bizarre choice to wedge gender identity issues into what is, again, a Twix commercial. And I think about the person who made this ad. I'm imagining (laughs) the person... (laughs) who was commissioned to do a short video for Twix, and they thought, time for me to strike a blow for transgender rights. They probably ran the idea past a few friends, and their friends were like, oh, yeah, mm, that's powerful. You know, so this is, the, this is the candy gig, right? They probably wrapped production thinking they had made the new Citizen Kane and then sat by the phone and waited for Glad to call and name them the person of this or any other century. And the person who made the video might have been a bit surprised when the video became a runaway hit in conservative media. I have to say, I wasn't surprised. I've been around long enough to know a liberal self-owned when I see one. The fact that conservative media had a big hyperbolic freakout doesn't phase me. That is, after all, what conservative media is built to do. And in the grand scheme of things, a self-important Twix ad 
doesn't matter. Except that, unfortunately, it kind of does matter. It matters in ways that are relevant to the conversation Democrats are having right now about how we present ourselves and what our priorities should be. David Shore's argument, in a very small nutshell, like a pistachio, is that Democrats should focus on popular things. Nobody really disagrees with this. There's no, hey, let's throw Buzz Aldrin down a flight of stairs contingent in the Democratic Party. As of this taping, as of this taping, the disagreement comes over what exactly it means to focus on popular things. Now, to shore, the first step towards finding optimal messaging Jesus is to recognize that the young, wealthy, educated twerps who work on democratic campaigns are very atypical. They have different priorities than the average voter, and they respond to different messages. Therefore, they should make campaign decisions based on data, not on their instincts. Because, after all, asking a 24-year-old Antioch grad from Boston to get inside the head of a 55-year-old landscaping worker from Wisconsin, that's like asking a gerbil to imagine being Anne Boleyn. They're not going to have success. It's not fair to the gerbil. They're not likely to make many accurate guesses. Unless Anne Boleyn was known for storing food in her cheeks. Was she? I'm not a historian. I don't know. At any rate, some people have read Shore's argument as a call to move to the center. That's not really it. Shore gives the thumbs up to left-ish policies like taxing the wealthy and letting the government negotiate prescription drug prices. And for what it's worth, Shore identifies as a socialist, so, you know, that's where he is. That's one inaccurate reading. An even less accurate reading of Shore's argument is that Democrats should abandon the preferences of voters of color. People make this argument. Here is Ellie Mistel writing in The Nation. I'm going to give him the old proper British accent I was doing earlier. He writes, A chorus of powerful Democrats has risen up inside the beltway to tell Democrats that abandoning black people are the very people who put them in power in the first place. And making performative efforts to win the support of racists is the only way to stay in power. End quote and accent. That is an astounding mischaracterization of Shore's argument. Mistel is actually responding to something pretty close to the exact opposite of Shore's argument. It's as if Mistel described the movie Seabiscuit as it's a movie about a talking pig who learns the true meaning of Christmas. How the fuck did you get that from Seabiscuit? I do not know what movie you were watching. And the key point here is that educated left weirdness is an overwhelmingly white phenomenon. Shore makes it clear that the policies he deems popular more accurately reflect the preferences of non-white Democrats than white Democrats. On one key point of contention, the defund the police talking point, a new poll shows us again what polls have been showing us for at least a year, and that is that more black people want more police funding than less. On a broader level, a 2017 study on American political identities 
found that the progressive activist group, the furthest left of the seven groups they identified, was also the second whitest. It was 80% white. It was exactly as white as the Backstreet Boys. And on the written version of this episode, I have posted a picture of the Backstreet Boys. So what better argument could there be for going to the written version? Those are five fresh-faced young lads. I did not post a picture of them today. I went not today. No, I posted a picture of them back in like 1999. No one wants to see them today. They're in their 40s. They're like my age. It's gross. I would never post that. Where was I? Oh, yes, the study. Let's dig into that study a bit more because when you combine this study with Shore's analysis, I think some things start to come into focus. The study I'm talking about is the Hidden Tribes study. Again, 2017. It's from the UK-based group called More in Common. And what they did is they surveyed 8,000 Americans and they used a statistical technique to sort those 8,000 Americans into groups. They found what they identify as seven political, they're calling them tribes, in America. So here are those seven. From left to right on the political spectrum, they are progressive activists, traditional liberals, passive liberals, the politically disengaged, moderates, traditional conservatives, and devoted conservatives. And they also indicate how many people fall into each group. They are not all the same size. To make a long story short, the groups in the middle have the most people. The groups on the wing have the fewest. They also call four of the groups in the middle, so from left to right, basically groups two through five. This is traditional liberals through moderates. They call those people the exhausted majority. Now, the main thing to note about this study is that two-thirds of the country is part of that so-called exhausted majority. These people are basically the votes that can be won and that have to be won if you want to win an election. Parentheses. Assuming you believe that more votes can be won from persuading undecided voters than can be won by just super mobilizing your base, and you should believe that because it's true, and we have a lot of evidence demonstrating that at this point. End parentheses. Now, one thing to note about the implications of this study is that there's not really a simple, oh, move to the center prescription to be drawn here. The so-called exhaustive majority have very diverse views. So the left-right paradigm is less useful than, say, sorting policies into popular and unpopular. The group on the far left, the progressive activist group, seems to basically be the group David Shore is talking about. That group is younger, they are whiter, they are more educated than the population, and they are described in part as, quote, secular, cosmopolitan, and highly engaged with social media. Are you getting a, a sense of who we're talking about? I hope that you are. At any rate, contrast that with some of the descriptions of the exhausted majority groups. You hear things like, they shy away from extremism of any sort. That's moderates. They value tolerance and compromise. That's traditional liberals. They try to avoid political conversations. That's passive liberals. And they are patriotic. That's the politically disengaged. And you can see why progressive activists rub the exhausted majority the wrong way. Also, by the way, the survey found that 80% of people agree with the statement, political correctness has gone too far. 80%! 
And on the blog, I have that same picture of the Backstreet Boys with four of them saying political correctness has gone too far and one of them saying Dave Chappelle should be fed to ravenous dogs, which I think is the state of the discourse. Anyway, the value, as I see it, to laying the Hidden Tribes study on top of David Shore's analysis is that you get a clearer picture of who progressive activists are and how they interact with the voters Democrats need to win. The, quote, very liberal white people that Shore says have too much influence over the Democratic Party, they start to come into focus in this study. And by the way, I am apparently one of these annoying dickholes whose voice is too loud within the party. I took the Hidden Tribe survey, which you can do online, and you should. It's kind of interesting. Take it with a grain of salt, but it's kind of interesting. Anyway, I took the survey, and I came out progressive activist. I thought for sure I was going to be traditional liberal, but nope. Progressive activist. I honestly had kind of hoped I had moved beyond the moralizing asshat portion of my life. But the survey tells me I have not. I guess being a preachy jerk is like being diabetic. You're never cured. You just manage it. But on the other hand, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. I'm highly educated and awfully goddamn white. And Shore thinks that people like me have way too much influence in the Democratic Party. And honestly, I agree. Where Shore and I differ is how much we think party operatives are able to chart a course for the party. Shore is a bigger believer than I am in the ability of campaigns to shape the conversation. I am closer to the Matt Iglesias argument, which says that fundamentals, which means just like the political climate generally, fundamentals are much more important than campaign decisions. I don't know if Shore and Iglesias actually disagree on this. It's more like Shore thinks campaigns matter some. Well, Iglesias might say they matter only a smidge. At any rate, I'm team smidge. And when I combine that belief with other things we know, for example, we know how few swing voters there are, and we know how hard it is to get an economic message across. And we know how salient cultural issues are. When I put all those things together, my conclusion is the best way to win an election is to have a good brand when election season starts. Of course, right-wing media has been on a mission to destroy the Democratic brand since the 90s. Fox News and talk radio run the same play over and over and over. They find the dumbest left-winger in America and make sure that moron is on the air 24-7. Two seconds after that Twix ad went up, I have no doubt that someone at Fox News HQ stood up and yelled, Bump the story on how Lego is promoting critical race theory. We have got today's headline, everyone. This media landscape creates a large structural disadvantage for Democrats. Obviously, look, the left has our own garbagey partisan media sources. And we have Twitter. What is Twitter if not a large, garbagey partisan media source? But what we have on the left is nothing like the maximally efficient bullshit factory that exists on the right. Every insane bit of language policing or campus horseshit or school board idiocy that happens on the left is sure to get maximum circulation in right-wing media. And we can't assume that those stories will stay quarantined. 
and right-wing crazy land, there is obviously some seepage into the real world. I'll mention once again that the political correctness is out of control belief is shared by basically everyone in this country except a few progressive activists. What this all means is that, to a large extent, the Democratic brand isn't something that's crafted by campaigns, it's crafted by everybody all the time. That, of course, is bad news for campaign consultants, who I'm basically saying are the sales team for a product they don't really get to craft. It's also bad news for candidates who find themselves connected to any flare-up of left-wing idiocy anywhere. If Terry McAuliffe is listening to this podcast, he's probably thinking, so let me get this straight. Some film school dropout somewhere makes a less-than-stellar Twix ad, and now that's my fucking problem? (laughs) And unfortunately, I think my answer is yes. Yes, I I think that is your problem. It's, It's ridiculous, but in a convoluted way, I think that's just how things work. Now, I should say, I am not naive enough to imagine that liberals could possibly ever be on such good behavior that we'd starve the right-wing media machine of content. There will always be some misguided teacher or weird-ass college administrator somewhere to keep the outrage train rolling. But I don't think it follows that it doesn't matter what anybody does. I think it would make a difference if there was a broad-based liberal movement to, say, put pets on puberty blockers until they declare a gender identity. I do think people would notice if Twitter tried to cancel Jimmy Stewart for using the word broads once in 1951. Look, we can't control the amount of stuff that right-wing media will throw against the wall. They will throw everything against the wall. But I do think we can influence how much of it will stick. With that being the case, I think it makes sense for highly educated liberals to be honest with ourselves. And that starts with admitting we can be annoying as fuck sometimes. That Twix ad... That rankles people because what's happening is someone is trying to jam their personal opinion into a cookie commercial. They're trying to put their political opinion into a space that should be occupied by cookie and nougat and nothing else. Many of us are obsessed with identity issues, and we tend to express that obsession in weird and condescending ways. That turns off Americans of all races. Too often, our politics are like a jaunty little hat. It is a desperate attempt at an identity that makes people not want to be around us. We should also admit that virtue signaling on the left is absolutely out of control. We should not imagine that we are getting away with this or that it doesn't matter. People notice it and they don't like it. People notice when a character is jammed into a movie just to score diversity points. People notice when a company makes a lame social justice statement that is totally empty and means nothing. People notice that the activism from celebrities and athletes, sometimes, sometimes, it's just image enhancement. People have noticed that the Oscars and Emmys have become unwatchable parades of self-importance. Honestly, as someone who cares about climate change, I sometimes think that the biggest thing Hollywood could do to fight climate change would be to shut the fuck up about it, please. Another problem, the language thing 
is absolute poison. Words and phrases like Latinx, whiteness, LGBTQIA2S+, which sounds made up. I'm not making that up. That's not a hyperbolic bunch of letters that I threw in there to be a dick. That is an actual thing you will see sometimes on Twitter. LGBTQIA2S+. I guess we're lucky there's not a Greek letter in there. Give it a year, there'll be a theta in there. I will say that's an outstanding password, because I see letters, I see a number, and I see a symbol. LGBTQIA2S+, that's how you get into my PayPal now. Anyway, Latinx, whiteness, LGBTQ, etc. Or, oh, look at this one too, uterus haver. These words, they make the speaker sound ridiculous, and even worse, they make the listener feel dumb. Because the speaker is obliquely calling the listener a bigot, and the speaker is also signaling their membership in a group that nobody wants to join. It is pretentious, it is high-handed, and again, everyone notices this crap. There are ways of being welcoming and inclusive without sounding like an Orwellian robot that fell into a puddle. I feel almost certain that David Shore knows all this, and if I understand him, he thinks it's a problem that Democratic operatives need to fix. And personally, I wouldn't say it's not a problem for Democratic operatives to fix, but I'd say it's more of a problem for everyone on the left to fix. Basically, we need to make it more appealing to be part of our tribe. None of us have a lot of control over this, but all of us have a little. The truth is, very few voters choose a candidate based on a cost-benefit analysis drawn from policy decisions, it comes more from a gut feeling of who's like them. People on the educated left aren't like many people. We're different, which that Twix ad taught me is okay. And it is okay. But being an obnoxious dickhole is not. And that's today's episode. I should mention that this episode is the first in a three-part series that I'm calling my Democrats What the Fuck Are We Doing Here series. You can find all the parts on my Substack. I might be wrong. And I should mention that this installment, the written version, went up the day of the elections in Virginia and New Jersey and other places. It went up before we knew the results, and I have to say, the results there certainly didn't make anything I wrote here less true. So, I guess it's timely because now is a good time for introspection on the left. Anyway, thank you as always for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, pass around. If you want to be a big shot and throw some money my way, you can do that on Substack. I would very much appreciate it. I would think that you are a very impressive, successful, wealthy, generous person. If you're not up for that, please tell people about it. That's how this thing grows. Anyway, I'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.